Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radiogram where we talk about all things sciencey. My name is Stu and on the show this week I'm going to have a little investigation of something that I've heard people say before about uh, sunscreen being more of a risk than what it prevents. So some people think that uh, wearing sunscreen has a detrimental effect on uh, vitamin D levels in the population and vitamin D levels are down. Uh, in various places in the world, and sunscreen use is up. So people are saying, oh, look, there's this correlation. But as we know, a correlation is not necessarily a causal relationship. That's right. It's just two things happening at the same time. So I'm going to have a look at what research there is. And in fact, there is some good research, uh, which suggests that it's probably not something to worry about. And Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week on the show, we have one of our first guests for 2021. Stu, I don't know if you saw the news this week. Um, The Perseverance rover has landed on Mars to look for life. Old Percy (laughs) Perseverance rover. Of course, course I did see the news, but I didn't see it on Facebook. Uh, But I saw it independently. You saw it independently. Um, that, yes, the Perseverance rover landed successfully on the planet of Mars it's, and there's started sending back pictures already. It's pretty exciting. And this week we have Brendan Burns from UNSW Centre for Astrobiology who's going to talk to us a little bit. Um, well, I'm going to ask him some questions about Perseverance um, and what we're looking for in terms of signs of life on Mars. Um, and Brendan's just uh, been part of a team that's put out a paper all about Australia's oldest living organisms and the world's oldest living organisms, stromatolites, and how, you know, if we study, you know, some of the oldest living things on this planet, we can determine what to expect in terms of life on other planets. So I've got a lot of questions for Brendan. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Sounds very exciting. So please stay tuned. Back in the late 90s, uh, I don't know if you remember, Claire, there was a surprising hit song for Baz Luhrmann, film director Baz Luhrmann. What? Called... He put out a song? He put out an album. Whoa. Um, called... And the, and the hit song was called Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, that... Basically... Wasn't that on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack or something? It was. Okay. It was. Uh, parts of it were, um, it was basically a fake speech to a graduating class set right. to some sort of backing music. Um, the spoken word part was taken from a Chicago Tribune article, which was attempting to emulate those kind of right. commemoration speeches. Yeah. Oh, um, dance like nobody's watching type thing. Yeah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And specifically mentions in the song that the long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists. Uh, I might actually play that song a bit later. So, you know, if, if we can squeeze it in. Um, that, that much of the speech is true. Sunscreen has been shown scientifically to reduce the risk of sun damage to the skin, which in turn reduces the rate of aging 
and the risk of skin cancers, amongst other things. Now, Australia is one of the places in the world with a very high rate of skin cancer. Um, but another health issue that's become apparent in recent years is vitamin D deficiency. And that has mm. become prevalent in Australia as well. Um, so vitamin D is a chemical that humans need to avoid things like rickets and osteoporosis, which is um, to do with a lack of calcium in the bones. Uh, and we can absorb it from food, but also can make vitamin D in our own bodies in the lower layers of our epidermis. Now, the reaction that makes vitamin D is dependent on exposure of the skin to UVB radiation, which right. comes from the sun. So most people normally would get adequate exposure to the sun, and that is all works perfectly well. Um, but some people have wondered about vitamin D and sunscreen, as there seems to be a correlation between increased sunscreen use and vitamin D deficiency in some parts of the world. So, and, and that kind of makes a degree of sense because the sunscreen itself is designed to block radiation from the sun from damaging your skin. So if yeah. the radiation is, is required to make the vitamin D and you block it with sunscreen, maybe you have less vitamin D. So it has been a question that's been looked at in numerous studies dating back into the 20th century. And there is a lot of data available on the subject of vitamin D levels and relating to uh, sunscreen. And it's so much information out there, it's probably beyond the casual reader to sift through it all. But luckily for us, scientists love to publish in journals, mostly because they'll lose their jobs if they don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they also have to review work that's already been done because if they want to start new research, they have to know what has already uh, occurred and what other people have found. So in 2019, a group of Australian scientists conducted a systematic review of literature in journals about the connection between vitamin D and sunscreen use that had been published since 1970. So they ignored earlier stuff. They focused on stuff since 1970, which is still you know, 50, nearly 50 years worth of, of info they're looking at. Um, they looked at a number of different kinds of studies, including experimental studies using artificial UV lights, as well as field trials and observational studies, uh, which are more sort of self-reported type studies. So their analysis showed that during experiments using artificial UV lights, there was some decline in the presence of vitamin D in the tested subjects when they applied sunscreens. So in those artificial experiments using artificial UV lights, there was a reduction in vitamin D. They also noted though, that the specific wavelengths of light from those artificial lamps were not really closely matching to what the sun actually puts out. Right. So, you know, they've got these artificial UV lights. They did an experiment, put sunscreen on. Oh, they've got lower vitamin D levels. But it, the guys doing the review said, this UV light's not really what you get when you go outside. So it wasn't a great model for the sun. No. And, and probably uh, I think people have moved away from that kind of experiment too. So they've, they've kind of gone into another um, uh, 
realm, another another method of experimentation. But theoretically, using sunscreen could lower the amount of vitamin D a person has in their body. So then they looked at randomized controlled field studies of sunscreen use. So this is actual testing of real-world sunscreen on people who are mm. going outdoors and doing things that you do outdoors while wearing the sunscreen and some people not wearing the sunscreen. So they're randomized controlled field studies. What they found was that there was no effect from using sunscreen on vitamin D levels. So right. normal people using normal sunscreen in normal conditions didn't get any reduction in the level of vitamin D. So under the real world conditions, it probably doesn't have that effect. And then finally, they looked into results from self-reported observational studies. Now, there's an issue with self-reporting in that how accurate is it going to be? Yeah, it's relying on the on the you know on the on the veracity of the participants to report exactly what they've yeah, done. Yeah, of course, which can be an issue. Uh, but what they found the results from those studies was that there was no relationship between sunscreen use and vitamin D levels, except. In some studies, there was an increase in vitamin D in people who wore sunscreen more often. So what they're suggesting or what the authors kind of uh, took from that was because it was self-reported, if people use sunscreen more often, they're probably going out in the sun more often than people who use sunscreen less often. And obviously sunscreen has a, you know, a sort of a, a, a a bell curve of effectiveness it works really well and then tapers off over yeah, time so yeah. so these people out in the sun more yeah are reapplying it more but they're still getting that incidental mm-hmm. exposure to the sun so there may be that their vitamin d levels are higher mm. just as a result of being in the sun more often so it is hard to say but um what they did find is in in real world conditions really it has no impact on your vitamin d levels so probably, you know, just keep wearing the sunscreen. But one thing they did mention was that there has been less study into the higher sun protection factor products that are on the market now. So most of these uh, testing and most of the, um, uh, the articles they looked at were on older sunscreens, which have a sun protection factor of about 15, which is, okay. used to be the old top of the, of the, sun, uh, the sunscreen range. Um, now, the thing about that is that uh, the scale is has got a diminishing increase. So the higher the number gets, the less difference there is between the next lowest number. Um, so a 50-plus sunscreen is not five times more effective yeah. than a 10-plus sunscreen. Um, it's, it's, it's slightly better, but it's not five times better. So the higher the number, the less of an increase there is each time the number goes up. Um, but look, at this point, based on all of this analysis and research, it seems there's no danger in reducing vitamin D from wearing sunscreen. So in reality, we should continue to slip, slop, slap, as we've always been told, because at the very worst, even if we do become vitamin D deficient, we can take vitamin D supplements if we absolutely have to. And there is really, you know, there's no pill you can take to cure skin cancer. So let's keep on with the sunscreen for now. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 97.
wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they've faded. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. Don't worry about the future, or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind, the kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. The race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance. Even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Brother and sister, together we'll make it through. Someday a spirit will take you and guide you there. To know your parents. 
never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. Understand that friends come and go, but with a precious few, you should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, because the older you get, the more you need the people you knew when you were young. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund, maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse, you never know when either one might run out. Don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. But trust me, on the sunscreen. continues this week with NASA's Perseverance rover landing on Mars. But what will life look like? On Mars, that is. By studying Earth's oldest living organisms, stromatolites, our guest today, Associate Professor Brendan Burns from UNSW's Australian Centre for Astrobiology, hopes to answer that question and many more about the origins and diversity of life in the universe. Brendan, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, it's some pretty big news this week from NASA with the Perseverance rover landing on Mars, looking for signs of life. What, in your, in your expert opinion, what, what is it actually looking for? It's looking for past life. So we're not scientists in the field hopeful or perhaps naive enough to think that we're going to look, find little green men doing backflips on the surface of Mars. What is more than likely, if anything, that we're going to find life 
or past evidence of life even below the surface of Mars. So it's not, the, the surface of Mars is not very hospitable, can get very, very, very cold at night, that's the one thing. But particularly where the, the Perseverance rover is landing now, it's landing in an area where they thought there was liquid water as far back as 3.5 billion years. And uh, the environment is potentially conducive to life. So we're looking at an environment where we think life may have kicked off in a similar environment on Earth. So our logic is to look for microbial life, which is the simplest form of life. And it could quite easily have formed potentially and left us a biosignature on Mars, which is what the little rover is going to be looking for. And what sort of biosignature could that be? Is that something that we see that we see on Earth? Uh, yes, it can be. And that's why we actually, a lot of the studies we do on Earth is to look for biosignatures in life as we know it. And then we can look for similar biosignatures if we go to Mars. And they could be anything from the way uh, the microorganisms interact with their immediate environment or they could be like a chemical fossil, um, the way they've changed the, mm. uh, the sediment. And we know that they do that here on Earth in some ways and leave a chemical signature and maybe they leave a similar chemical signature on Mars. And the instrumentation on Mars is, is quite sophisticated to look for these kinds of, of signatures. And which is a first, they're actually also going to be prepping samples for a potential sample return mission, which is actually planned for... The actual sample return mission isn't definite yet, but they're going to prep them and then I hope that one day they'll be able to get them back to Earth to be able to look at samples. That was going to be my next question. What are you, as an astrobiologist, what are you most looking forward to? Is it the pictures? Is it, um, you know, any sort of other instrumental data or is it the samples potentially coming back to Earth one day? I think I think the, the last one would be amazing. I just know that that's probably along the way off the, the sample return, but I guess that's the the kind of holy grail of when we can actually get our, our literal hands on, on samples. But I, I'd be certainly fascinated by some of the, as a scientist, the data they get back, if they get potential signatures, if they can get, or with the, with the cameras, if they can see something that looks like a formation that we see on Earth, the way microorganisms change the, the, the rock. If, if we can see something similar to on Mars, we still have to do a lot of tests to make sure that it wasn't formed by non-biological means. But that could be like a, like a smoking gun to say, look, maybe this is what happened on Earth in terms of microorganisms also happened on another planet. And that would, to me, that's unbelievably profound because that changes our whole way of thinking of, of, our, of our place in the universe if we're, if we're alone or not, basically. And in your opinion, what do you think of the chances? The chances of, of us being alone or of finding something? Oh, of finding something, of the perseverance finding, finding something Look, it's a good question. Uh, I don't want to get too confident. I'll say this. I generally believe that, that somewhere out there life has taken off. Um, there's just a series of events that, that could have led, particularly to simple like, like my, microbial life. And the conditions on Mars are certainly conducive to that happening. Whether or not the Perseverance rover goes in the right spot mm. and in the exact right place to, to bring us back that evidence, I guess that's another... Another thing, I naively hope that's the case, but I guess from a positive point of view, if it doesn't find evidence, it doesn't mean it's not there or not waiting to be found somewhere else, if, if that makes sense. So I'm hopeful, um, but if it doesn't happen, to me, it's not the end of the, the search for life elsewhere world, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned stromatolites as the oldest organism on Earth. Can you talk us through what 
what they actually are and and why an astrobiologist would want to study them. So basically they're they're very they're complex microbial communities and they've been around for a long time. That's one of the main areas of interest, I guess. And they form these really distinctive structures. So if anyone been over to Shark Bay in Western Australia, you get these hard, I guess, cauliflower-like like structures. And the microorganisms interact with each other and their environment, and they basically build up, they're building a home. An example I like to try and give is you can visit these like a microbial apartment block. You've got diverse <laughs> microorganisms, different capabilities, different layers at different levels, hanging out with each other, exchanging goods and services, communicating, hitting onto their neighbour, doing everything. And in the case of these specific systems, there's a, different, there's a certain chain of events, and we think viruses might be involved in this. And this leads to the pouring of the concrete, if you like, that forms these hard stromatolite structures. And these are preserved through deep time. Right. And that's where we find it really interesting because the oldest um, examples of these in the Pilbara are around about 3.6 billion years old, I think. Wow. So they, they give us a, a huge evolutionary history of, of life on Earth. And in fact, I don't think it's a, it's a big stretch to say that we owe our very existence to these kinds of systems because the microorganisms in these, in these systems were the, one of the first ones to produce oxygen. Um, mm. And without oxygen, we wouldn't be here. So the, great, the explosion of life as we know it likely came about through the organisms that started off in these, in these systems a long time ago. So the stromatolites that you mentioned in Shark Bay in Western Australia, are they still alive now? Are they still organisms? Are they still contributing to that apartment block that you talk Absolutely. about? They're, they're still kicking along. So these are the, 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 the living ones, that, particularly that I, I study, and they're really good because they're, everything's happening at the moment. You can literally see what's going on with, with different microscopy or, or a lot of the what we call next generation sequencing um, technologies. We can go right digging, digging down with their DNA, looking at who's there, what they're doing. So these are the living ones. If you go to the Pilbara, these, this is where the fossilised ones are, are found. And so there's only, I guess there's a limited amount of information you can get the, from the fossilised ones. So we're using these mm. modern ones, I guess, as, a, as an analogue or a proxy of, of ancient life to try and piece together what may or may not have happened as, as we journey through time. And are they, are they massive? You said cauliflowers, but, uh, I mean, how, how big, big are pretty, they? Pretty big cauliflower. But yeah. I guess when I say, okay, we're probably looking at maybe a maximum, say, a metre and a half or so. So they don't get mm. big. They can only grow to a certain, because they, they're found in, in tidal areas and they can only get to a certain height where they wouldn't eventually just kind of topple over by their own, own weight. So you're probably looking at about a metre and a metre and a half. But that's still a fairly sizable home if you like and this is just built up over in the case of these modern forms probably thousands of years but again some of the fossilized ones are, are, go back to, to billions of years ago. Um, now you are part of a team that has just published a paper looking at how how the stromatolites go from I guess a bacterial colony to something that looks like sort of that rock-like structure. Can you talk us through that research a little bit what what you did and what you found? Yep. So I guess a lot of people, people in the field, including ourselves, are focused a lot on what different microorganisms, the bacteria and another domain, the archaea, do in these systems. But one group that has been pretty much overlooked are viruses. And you don't have to, uh, you have to be under a rock to know that viruses don't have a great a reputation at the moment um, yep. being a global pandemic. But the reality is viruses are very important, actually do a lot of good things um, in terms of 
keeping the world ticking over. And the paper that we wrote is basically proposed, pro sorry, proposing different models um, for how these stromatolite systems may have formed and indeed transformed the biosphere by viruses getting in there and, and actually changing the way microorganisms interact and, and their metabolisms to actually form these hard rock-like structures. And what did you sort of find with these, the in interrelationship between the virus and the bacteria? Well, at the moment, I should say, at the moment, this the, the paper we've got is more of a um, an opinion piece that that's proposing kind of new models for how they're formed. And what we want to do now is experimentally test that. So there's different things we can look at in, in, a, in an experimental situation. We can add viruses with different bacteria that we know come from stromatolites and see if it can if the viruses can push their metabolisms in different directions that will ultimately form these, these hard rock-like structures. One of my uh, colleagues that I've worked with on this um, paper, Peter Vischer from the US, had a really good analogy um, that viruses, it, similar to billiards or, or pools, you can imagine an ancient organism like a, a billiard ball and it's on an evolutionary path somewhere. And you've got a virus has an ability to activate genes or turn off genes and it's like the pool cue and it's tapping the ball to go into new and beneficial directions potentially. So it's pushing evolution in different directions, mm. deciding whether or not these stromatolites actually form or not. And once you have this sort of deeper understanding of the processes and the relationship between the bacteria and the viruses and um, how it forms, you know, stromatolites in life, how, how do you think your research will, I guess, develop an understanding of of potentially how you know life could have could have been in on Mars millions of years ago. Well, I think I guess as kind of going back to the earlier point on things like biosignatures. If by studying the in these modern examples the roles of viruses in changing the makeup of these systems and and, and altering the way they're formed, it could be through the action of viruses that also leads to, to different kinds of biosignatures that perhaps we weren't expecting. Mm. If we can understand that process in these modern systems and that might actually direct us to looking for different kinds of biosignatures on Mars or on Europa or somewhere else because now we have an understanding of the role of a particular group, viruses, for example, have perhaps informing these biosignatures. So it can help us inform potentially about the evolution of life on Earth and then, again, potentially life elsewhere. And this research project that uh, you've been working on, it is a collaboration? Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I have to say that I think all good science is a, is a result of collaboration. It's very, very rarely one person that, that actually makes any, any massive, you know, great discoveries. And it's two, two fantastic people I work with um, in the United States, Peter Bishop from University of Connecticut and Rick White from North Carolina, and also our own research students in those groups. And the best thing for me about science is I'm not an expert in every field. I've got my own little field and, and these guys have got their own small areas as well. But coming together is the way that we can really push this and push the boundaries of, of research forward. So for me, that's one of the best things about science, collaborating with really, really cool people and answering questions that, that there's probably very little chance you'd be able to do on your own. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic way. And I think maybe it's, it's the way society could be or should be in general, working together to try and advance knowledge. 
Well, Brendan, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and thank you so much for collaborating with your um, colleagues as well. And I'm certainly very much looking forward to the Perseverance bringing back some rocks so you can get your hands on them to do some more studies as well. Would love to do that. No problem. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thanks, Brendan. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.